In a past episode, I had mentioned briefly that there were six particular real estate techniques that were basically complementary to one another, and which would, as a collective whole, complete you as a creative real estate entrepreneur. And I've also mentioned in at least a couple of episodes that being competent in all of these complementary techniques would equip you to operate in virtually any market condition and without really any concerns as to the future direction of that marketplace. But you know, so far I haven't really given you much else in the way of details as to why that is or how these techniques are essentially complementary to one another. But I'm going to flesh that out a little bit more for you right now as we take a closer look at their complementary nature in this episode of the Creative Real Estate Investing Podcast. Creative real estate strategies, unique insights, simple enough for beginners, powerful enough for seasoned pros, and all with zero hype or bullshit. You're listening to the Creative Real Estate Investing Podcast with Nick Modarelli, the show designed to put you and keep you on the leading edge of real estate investing. And now, here's Nick. Whenever I mention the concept of complementary techniques, there always seems to be this expectation that some of these techniques are designed to work only in an up or an upward trending real estate market, while others were designed to work only in down or downward spiraling real estate markets. But you know, it's really less about the market itself than you think. I mean, sure, market conditions can definitely be a contributing factor, no doubt. But do you know what it really comes down to? The property's equity. Or more specifically, it comes down to three things. Number one, which techniques can help you capture as much of the existing equity as possible when the property actually has some? Or number two, which other techniques can help you generate the most new equity out of thin air when the property doesn't? And number three, Which techniques can capture existing equity and create some new equity in cases where the property has a little bit of equity available now, but just not enough for you to otherwise get involved? See, all of those variable characteristics about equity are what really makes these techniques complementary to one another. I mean, think about it. There are only four different equity levels that a property can have. A whole lot, a little, none, or negative. There really just isn't any other amount. So that means that even though all of the highly motivated sellers that you're going to meet over the course of your entire lifetime might have a hundred different reasons for being highly motivated, all of their properties are still going to fit into just one of those four basic categories. So you just need to make sure that you possess the right handful of techniques that would allow you to find a way to profit from any one of those four equity scenarios on demand. And when you can do that, you'll be a bubble-proof and recession-proof transaction specialist also known as a creative real estate entrepreneur. Now, please remember, like I've said before, there will always be other ways to buy and sell properties in any market, and some of them may even be much more profitable than these six complementary techniques we're about to discuss. But if you have at least these six going for you, you can be successful virtually anywhere and at virtually any point in any cycle. So now let's take a minute to look at each one of these techniques individually to understand their basic mechanics as well as where each one lands on the spectrum of capturing equity or creating equity or doing both. Again, in no particular order, these six techniques are number one, wholesaling, number two, lease purchase, number three, seller financing, number four, subject twos, also known as sub twos, number five, short sales, and number six, options. 
So let's look at wholesaling first. Wholesaling is the practice of putting a property under contract for well below market value, marking the price up just a little so that it's still a really good deal for someone, and then reselling the property as is, or just assigning your contract, to an end buyer. This end buyer will be the one who'll make the repairs or improvements to the property instead of you. Now, in this scenario, you would receive a quick and easy wholesaling profit simply for putting the deal together. And your end buyer would generally reap the majority of the profits from the deal in exchange for their greater investment of time and effort and money in the property. Now, wholesaling works in any market, whether it's in an up or a down cycle. In an up market, it's easier for sellers to find buyers at good prices. So wholesaling deals are typically a little more scarce and tougher to find. But the trade-off here is that your profit on each deal tends to be much higher due to that same high market demand. Now, in a down cycle, sellers typically have a harder time selling their properties at decent prices. So as a result, wholesale deals can be a bit easier to find. But the trade-off here, though, again, is that your profits on each deal tend to be a bit lower due to the generally lower demand and, by extension, generally lower prices. By the way, you may notice that I'll be using the words tend and generally quite often in the basic description of these techniques throughout this podcast. And that's because nothing I tell you here is going to be hard and fast and always true. So I have to speak in generalities because each deal I've ever done and each deal you'll ever do will be its own individual transaction with its own particular set of dynamics. So now when it comes to the technique of wholesaling, where does it fit in regarding its ability to capture or create equity? Well, I think its role is pretty obvious. The very low price of a wholesale transaction means that wholesaling is primarily designed to capture as much of the property's existing equity as possible. It does this by creating a transaction with a large pool of equity from which you can draw your initial wholesaling profit while leaving the majority of the equity in the deal untouched to give your end buyer something to collect later on after they've invested their time and money fixing the property up to resell it or rent it out. Technique number two, lease purchase. A lease purchase is when you put a property under contract to lease for a specific period of time with the right to buy it at a predetermined price at any point in the future during that lease period. Now, there aren't any normal or standard lengths of lease purchase agreements. I mean, I've seen them go for as little as six months, and I've seen them go for as long as 10 years. But for the most part, they pretty often run in the two to five year range on average. As for their basic structure, most of the lease purchase deals I've ever seen, and pretty much all of the lease purchases I've ever done, involve properties with only a little bit of equity today, maybe 10000 to 25000 or so. Most of all of that would have gotten eaten up in just cost and fees if I were to simply have bought it outright and immediately resold it. So one thing that creative entrepreneurs often do is put the properties under contract for a price that's equal to the seller's loan payoff, assuming their mortgage balance is below the current market value, and then arranging for monthly lease payments that are equal to the seller's monthly mortgage payments, assuming those payments are below the area's market rents. Now, they do this to provide the seller with debt relief from this house to help them afford to move on to their next house, or maybe to help them stop the financial bleeding of continuing to pay for this old house after they've already moved to their next house. Either way, the benefits for the entrepreneur are that it allows them to capture that little bit of equity that's already there up front by getting a price slightly below market value, and also by creating some additional new equity in two ways. The first way is monthly, and it comes in the form of a spread between the higher monthly lease payments that they're collecting and the lower monthly mortgage payments that they're making. The second way is at the back end, when the entrepreneur sells the property years later at its higher future value, but only has to pay the seller the lower price of the remaining loan payoff. In other words, even though the entrepreneur's buy price was below the current market value when they put the deal together today, 
it will be even lower in the future than it is now because the mortgage loan will have paid down some over the few years of the lease purchase deal. All of this means that unlike a wholesale deal, which captures as much existing equity as possible right up front, a lease purchase transaction falls into the category of capturing some existing equity now and creating more equity later. Number three, seller financing. Seller financing comes in two basic forms, a land contract, which is also known as a contract for deed, depending on what state you're in, and a seller carryback. Both of those methods start out the same way, with the buyer and the seller agreeing on a price and a down payment, a monthly payment, and an interest rate on the remaining balance. Now, even though both types of transactions move forward from that point very similarly in function, they're quite different in form. And here's what I mean. On a land contract or contract for deed, the buyer takes possession of the property at the closing, but the seller retains the actual deed to the property. The buyer then makes payments to the seller until the land contract is paid in full, at which point the seller deeds the property to the buyer free and clear. On a seller carryback transaction, the seller deeds the property to the buyer right up front at the closing, and the buyer takes control of the property as the actual owner. The buyer then makes payments to the seller just as though the seller was a traditional bank and continues to make the payments until the price has been paid in full, as agreed, at which time the seller then releases the mortgage. In both cases, the buyer is the one who's responsible for all repairs, maintenance, and improvements to the property, as well as paying for property taxes and insurance. In both cases as well, the buyer also gets the tax benefits of interest paid to the seller, because both transactions are classified by the IRS as a sale by installments, rather than as some form of a long-term lease. Now, in practical applications, a seller finance deal is very similar to a lease purchase in that the creative real estate entrepreneur often pays pretty close to retail value on the property, unlike the lowball prices of a wholesale deal. And also like a lease purchase, the entrepreneur gets to pay the seller over a period of time, as opposed to all at once, as in a conventional sale. But unlike lease purchase deals, seller finance transactions often go for much longer terms, more like 7 to 10 years or so, but they can go much longer. I think the shortest one I've ever seen for an investment transaction was for five years, but I've also seen a few that were written for 20-year terms. It's really a case-by-case thing, but the general rule of thumb is when you're buying with seller financing, you want to make the transaction as long as possible, and when you're selling on seller financing, you want to make the transaction as short as possible. So given all this, you're probably assuming that seller financing, just like a lease purchase, falls into the category of capture some equity now and creates more equity later. And you'd be right, kind of. But see, seller financing is even better than a lease purchase. That's because there's an additional interesting element to seller finance deals. See, when you offer a property for sale that already has built-in financing, unlike a lease purchase, which is going to require financing at some point in the near future, it immediately adds about 7 to 10% to the property's current market value. And that's because of all the conveniences to the buyer of not having to come up with all cash to buy the property or having to be bothered with the hassles and the costs of qualifying for a traditional mortgage loan. That means seller finance transactions can be defined more like captures and creates some equity now and then creates even more equity later, which sort of puts them in a special category all their own. It also helps to make them even more complementary to both wholesale and lease purchase deals. Technique number four. Subject twos, also known as sub twos. Now, the first thing that I need to explain about a subject two or a sub two transaction, which is what I'm going to call them from here out, is where they get their odd sounding name. The easiest way is to just tell you how they work 
and then the name's going to make sense right away. In a sub-2 transaction, the seller simply deeds the property to the buyer without paying off any of the loans or liens against the property. The buyer then takes title to the property, subject to all those mortgages and liens, hence the name. It's almost like doing one of those old loan assumptions from way back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. You've been around for a long time. You might remember those. When nearly all mortgages could just be taken over freely by the buyer. This was a very desirable convenience for buyers, of course, because having the loan already in place meant they didn't have to go get one. It also meant that the buyer would need to bring much less, if any, cash to the sale in most cases. Plus, the loan would also remain the responsibility of the seller if the buyer ever stopped paying. So as you can see, this was a pretty sweet opportunity for buyers back then. But over time, lenders all started adding due-on-sale clauses into their mortgages, which required the loans to be paid off if the properties were ever sold. This prevented buyers from using the simple assumption process to freely take over as many mortgages as they wanted, but it didn't stop creative real estate entrepreneurs. They just simply started using sub-2 transactions instead of assumptions to take title to properties while leaving the existing loans in place. And again, because there was already a loan there, the buyer on a sub-2 transaction didn't have to go get a mortgage. It also required them quite often to have to bring much less, if any, cash to closing. And which, just like assumptions, left the seller responsible for the mortgages, in case the real estate entrepreneurs were ever unable to pay. But then you might be wondering, doesn't the due-on-sale clause allow the lender to foreclose if a seller lets you take title to their property without paying the mortgage off? Well, yes, it allows them the right to foreclose, but most of them won't. And here's why. A foreclosure can be very expensive and would be an additional expense to the lender, which only increases their exposure to potential losses. Plus, it would also add a defaulted loan to the lender's portfolio of non-performing assets, which most lenders hate to have on their financial statements, by the way. Most lenders just want performing assets that produce profitable monthly cash flow in the form of timely mortgage payments. And that's it. Now, when most creative entrepreneurs buy on a sub-2, they usually end up paying a fair price, or sometimes even full price for the property, in exchange for getting their hands on that instant and completely non-recourse financing. And in case you didn't already know it, non-recourse just means they're not personally liable for the monthly payments, or for paying back the remaining loan balance either. Those obligations would remain with the seller. Anyway, once the entrepreneur owns the property, which happens immediately upon the transfer of the deed at the closing right up front, they're free to rent it out, lease purchase it, or resell it any way they want. This allows for the creation of new transactional equity out of thin air that can be captured monthly and or in the future by reselling the property at a much higher price later on. So sub-twos generally fall into the create equity out of thin air bucket, even though they can also occasionally capture some equity up front too, just like a lease purchase or a seller finance deal. Technique number five, short sales. A short sale is when a property is purchased for less than what's owed on it because the lender or lenders involved agreed to take a discounted payoff in an effort to stop or avoid a foreclosure. See, sometimes it makes a whole lot more sense for a lender to accept less than the full amount that they're owed because it could actually end up costing them a lot more in the long run if they get the property back in a foreclosure, as they so often do. Remember, like I said earlier, lenders hate having non-performing assets on their balance sheets. And the entire time that the loan is in default, it's a non-performing paper asset. And then if they get the property back in a foreclosure, which is pretty common, it becomes a non-performing physical asset. Now, the very first sentence in my description of a short sale should be a pretty convincing clue into which column short sales fall when it comes to either capturing existing equity or creating new equity. They clearly create new equity where there previously was none, or more precisely, where there previously was an equity deficit or negative amount. 
Now, short sales can work in any market at any time, but they're generally more abundant during down cycles where the economy is often weak and property sales as well as values are typically on the decline. Of course, it was an absolute Wild West shootout in the immediate wake of the 2008 mortgage meltdown, but many of the lessons learned by lenders and borrowers alike during that debacle are going to make another national short sale tsunami like that one very unlikely to come around again anytime soon. And last but not least, technique number six, options. An option gives you the legal right, but not the obligation to purchase a property at a certain price and terms for a specific period of time. It's that simple. Just like lease purchase and seller finance deals, there's no such thing as a standard length of an option period, but they often run anywhere from six months to two years in length. In commercial real estate, options are generally used to tie up one or more potential properties so that the optionee, or the potential buyer, can have a chance to conduct any necessary due diligence like market research or build-out expenses, feasibility studies, or whatever. But in residential real estate, they're usually coupled with a lease agreement to form the ever-popular lease option transaction. They're rarely used as a standalone technique. So when and why would you want to use an option by itself in residential real estate? And do you even want to use one at all? Well, like I said a couple of episodes back in my introduction of the core complementary techniques, options are basically optional, and you may not really have a need or a desire to use this technique. See, an option can be used just about anywhere, but for a creative real estate entrepreneur, the most likely use is in high-end properties, and the higher, the better. And here's why. Buying high-end properties is an extremely cash-intensive process. Now, this is true even if you're borrowing 85 to 90% of your purchase price from a funding partner or hard money lender. Remember, creative entrepreneurs don't use traditional banks. See, 10 to 15% of a property's value is a relatively low amount by percentage. But 10 to 15% of a very high-end property can equal a lot of cash in actual dollars, meaning you would need a huge cash down payment on even an 85% finance deal. For instance, just 15% of a $1.5 million property is $225,000 in cash. That's a lot of jack, right? So then putting a $1.5 million property under contract to buy at a 15% discount sounds like a home run because it would appear to give you a huge $225,000 pool of potential equity to work with. Yes, but here are the challenges. When it comes to determining the market value on very high-end properties, it gets a lot more difficult to nail down the value exactly because at that price point, properties are all so unique that it becomes nearly impossible to find very similar comparable sales that can help you precisely validate a $1.5 million price tag. And it's not uncommon at all to see very high-end properties take several weeks or even many months to sell, and they can often go for 15 to 20% less than their opening list price, even in a balanced market, especially in a down market. So right off the bat, if you were to buy it outright at a 15% discount, which would be a price of $1.275 million, you're going to have to come up with $200,000 in cash for a down payment. And then your best offer from a subsequent buyer could easily be months and months later and for less than what you actually paid for it. And even if you can get an offer for 10% more than you paid for it, which would be equal to a cash spread of $127,000, by the time you deduct your buying costs, the cost of your funding, your holding costs, and finally your selling costs, including real estate commissions and conveyance fees, you might only make a few thousand dollars for taking all that risk. Or worse, you could easily lose many thousands of dollars. See, one thing you have to keep in mind is that the costs and the fees of liquidating any property are generally proportional. 
So if you'd expect to spend 10 to 12% liquidating a $100,000 property, and you will if you include price concessions, real estate commissions, closing costs, conveyance fees, and seller contributions, then you can reasonably expect to spend somewhere near the same percentage liquidating a property with a $1.5 million list price. So, long story short, I know, too late, right? Using an option agreement, which does not obligate you to buy the property, instead of a purchase agreement, which does obligate you to buy the property, you can lock down a nice spread on a high-end property for up to several weeks or months while you try to find out what you actually can resell it for before you ever have to decide to go ahead and buy it. This removes your risk for incurring any losses and lets you decide to move forward with the deal only after you already know for certain what your end profit's going to be. But won't your purchase and liquidation costs still be pretty high? Yes, maybe, not necessarily. <laughs> you see, instead of buying and reselling the property, you could actually just assign your option agreement directly to your new buyer for a nice big assignment fee. And that would remove all of your costs for buying, funding, holding, and reselling the property. But even if you do choose to go ahead and buy it and then immediately flip it, at least this way you'd be sure up front that more money is going to be coming in than you'll have to pay out because you got a chance to test the market first before actually buying it. And even if things don't pan out and you can't find a buyer at a higher price, you can always go back and try to renegotiate for a lower option price with your seller or simply walk away from the property in good conscience since you never had any legal, moral, or ethical obligation to buy it. Now, all of that said, you do have to be aware of your state or local laws regarding real estate options. If you're only using them very occasionally, you'd probably be okay in most areas, since it would be an infrequent one-off type deal. But I wouldn't suggest adopting option flipping as a primary business model unless you know for sure that you're not going to have any issues with your state or local regulators. See, some states view the practice of dealing in options by unlicensed people as an attempt to illegally circumvent real estate licensing laws. I know for a fact that Ohio, and Colorado, and Louisiana are just a few, but I can tell you right off the bat, and you know, their option laws are not really unique. In fact, they actually reflect similar statutes of many other states. And then there's Florida, which has a law in place that requires a substantial option fee be paid up front in order for the option to even be valid and binding, which pretty much rules out any attempt you might have of trying to do a low or no money down option deal. And still other states and municipalities like the state of Illinois and the city of Philadelphia have strict licensing requirements in place for any kind of instant flip transaction which is the kind of deal you'd be doing with an option in the way we're discussing here. So when I said in that past episode that you may or may not want to use options depending on where you live, I was not just talking about whether or not you live in an area with lots of high-end properties. I was also referring to whether or not you live in any area which has state or local laws that might be problematic for you because they regulate the use of options without a valid real estate license. Okay, so let's recap. Of the six core complementary techniques we've just looked at, Two are designed to simply capture as much existing equity as possible when the property has enough to make the deal worthwhile. Those two techniques being wholesaling and options. Three other techniques are designed to help you capture some existing equity now and then create some additional equity later when there's only a limited amount of equity available today. Those three techniques being a lease purchase when the seller is very motivated, seller financing when the seller is very highly motivated, and sub twos when the seller just wants to walk away from the property. And then there's one last technique that's designed to instantly create all the equity you need to make the deal profitable when there isn't any equity at all, or usually when there's a negative amount. And that's the short sale technique. 
So hopefully now you can clearly understand how these six techniques can provide you with a full complement of creative buying and selling techniques that you can use depending on the specific circumstances of each property and or the motivation level of each particular seller. The idea being, of course, to make you capable of working with virtually any motivated seller you ever come across, regardless of the amount of equity they have in their property or the amount of equity that they're willing to give up for the sake of doing a deal with you. Okay, so yes, I know this was a long and heavy episode with lots of information coming at you all at once. So you might have to give this episode a listen through several times to get it all down. But I promise you, it'll be worthwhile for you in the end if you do it. And with that thought, it's time for me to finally put this episode to bed. I'm Nick Mottarelli, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode of the Creative Real Estate Investing Podcast. So long for now.